The Crystal Shard, Chapter 28, A Lie Within a Lie Regis rubbed the afterimage of the blinding flash out of his eyes and found himself facing the wizard. Kessel lounged on a crystal throne, leaning back against one of its arms, with his legs casually thrown over the other. They were in a squared room of crystal, giving a slick visual impression, but feeling as solid as stone. Regis knew immediately that he was inside the tower. The room was filled with dozens of ornate and strangely shaped mirrors. One of those in particular, the largest and most decorative, caught the halfling's eye, for a fire was ablaze within its depths. At first, Regis looked opposite the mirror, expecting to see the source of the image. But then he realized that the flames were not a reflection, but an actual event occurring within the dimension of a mirror itself. Welcome to my home, the wizard laughed. You should consider yourself fortunate to witness its splendor. But Regis fixed his gaze upon Kessel, studying the wizard closely, for the tone of his voice did not resemble the characteristic slur of others he'd entranced with the ruby. You'll forgive my surprise when we first met, Kessel continued. I did not expect the sturdy men of ten towns to send a halfling to do their work. He laughed again, and Regis knew that something had disrupted the charm he'd cast upon the wizard when they were outside. The halfling could guess what had happened. He could feel the throbbing power of this room. It was evident that Kessel fed off of it. With his psyche outside, the wizard had been vulnerable to the magic of the gemstone. But in here... His strength was quite beyond the ruby's influence. "'You said you had information to tell me,' Kessel demanded suddenly. "'Speak now, the whole of it, or I shall make your death an unpleasant one.' Regis stuttered, trying to improvise an alternate tale. The insidious lies he'd planned to weave would have little value on the unaffected wizard. In fact, in their obvious weakness, they might reveal much of the truth about Cassius's strategies. Kessel straightened on his throne and leaned over the halfling, imposing his gaze upon his counterpart. Speak, he commanded evenly. Regis felt an iron will insinuating itself into all of his thoughts, compelling him to obey Kessel's every command. He sensed that the dominating force wasn't emanating from the wizard, though. Rather, it seemed to be coming from some external source— perhaps the unseen object that the wizard occasionally clutched in a pocket of his robes. Those of halfling stock possessed a strong natural resistance to such magic, however, and a countering force, the gemstone, helped Regis fight back against the insinuating will and gradually push it away. A sudden idea came over Regis. He had certainly seen enough individuals fall under his own charms to be able to imitate their revealing posture. He slouched a bit, as though he had suddenly been put completely at ease, and focused his blank stare on an image in the corner of the room beyond Kessel's shoulder. He felt his eyes drying out, but he resisted the temptation to blink. "'What information do you desire, Master Kessel?' "'Good,' the wizard smirked to himself. "'Admit the truth, halfling. The story you were sent to tell me was a deception.' Why not, Regis thought. A lie flavored with the sprinklings of truth becomes that much stronger. Yes, he answered. To make you think that your truest allies plotted against you. 
And what was the purpose? Kessel pressed, quite pleased with himself. Surely the people of Bryn Shander know that I could easily crush them without any allies at all. It seems a feeble plan to me. Cassius had no intentions of trying to defeat you, Master Kessel, Regis said. Then why are you here? And why didn't Cassius simply surrender the city as I demanded? I was sent to plant some doubts, replied Regis, blindly improvising to keep Kessel intrigued and occupied. Behind the facade of his words, he was trying to put together some kind of an alternate plan. To give Cassius more time to lay out his true course of action. Kessel leaned forward. And what might that course of action be? Regis paused, searching for an answer. You cannot resist me, Kessel roared. My will is too great. Answer, or I shall tear the truth from your mind. To escape, Regis blurted, and after he said it, several possibilities opened up before him. Kessel reclined again. Impossible, he replied casually. My army is too strong at every point for the humans to break through. Perhaps not as strong as you believe, Master Kessel, Regis baited, his path now clear before him, a lie within another lie. He liked the formula. Explain, Kessel demanded, a shadow of worry clouding his cocky visage. Cassius has allies within your ranks. The wizard leaped from his chair, trembling in rage. Regis marveled at how effectively his simple imitation was working. He wondered for an instant if any of his other victims had likewise reversed the dupe on him. He put the disturbing thought away for future contemplation. Orcs have lived among the people of Ten Towns for many months now, Regis went on. One tribe actually opened up a trading relationship with the fishermen. They, too, answered your summons to arms, but they still hold loyalties, if any of their kind ever truly hold loyalties, to Cassius. Even as your army was entrenched in the field around Bryn Shander, the first communications were exchanged between the orc chieftain and orc messengers that slipped out of Bryn Shander. Kessel smoothed his hair back and rubbed his hand nervously across his face. Was it possible that his seemingly invincible army had a secret weakness? No, no one would dare oppose Akar Kessel. But still, if some of them were plotting against him, if all of them were plotting against him, would he know? And where was Urtu? Could the demon be behind this? Which tribe? He asked Regis softly, his tone revealing that the halfling's news had humbled him. Regis drew the wizard fully into the deception. The group that you sent to sack the city of Bremen, the orcs of the severed tongue, he said, watching the wizard's widening eyes with complete satisfaction. My job was merely to prevent you from taking any action against Bryn Shander before the fall of night, for the orcs shall return before dawn, presumably to regroup in their assigned position on the field, but in actuality 
to open a gap in your western flank. Cassius will lead the people down the western slope to the open tundra. They only hope to keep you disorganized long enough to give them a solid lead. Then you shall be forced to pursue them all the way to Luskin. Many weak points were apparent in the plan, but it seemed a reasonable gamble for people in such a desperate situation to attempt. Kessel slammed his fist down on the arm of the throne. The fools! he growled. Regis breathed a bit easier. Kessel was convinced. Urtu! he screamed suddenly, unaware that the demon had been banished from the world. There was no reply. Oh, damn you, demon! Kessel cursed. You are never about when I most need you, he spun on Regis. You wait here. I shall have many more questions for you later. The roaring fires of his anger simmered wickedly. But first, I must speak with some of my generals. I shall teach the orcs of the severed tongue to oppose me. In truth, the observations Cassius had made had labeled the orcs of the severed tongue as Kessel's strongest and most fanatical supporters. A lie within a lie. Out on the waters of Mare Dalden later that evening, the assembled fleet of the four towns watched suspiciously as a second group of monsters flowed out from the main force and headed in the direction of Bremen. Curious. Kemp remarked to Muldoon of Lonelywood, and the spokesman from the burn city of Bremen, who were standing on the deck of Targos's flagship behind him. All of Bremen's populace was out on the lake. Certainly the first group of orcs, after the initial bow shots, had met no further resistance in the city, and Bryn Shander stood intact. Why, then, was the wizard further extending his line of power? Akar Kessel confuses me,' said Muldoon, Either his genius is simply beyond me, or he truly makes glaring tactical errors. Assume the second possibility, Kemp instructed hopefully. For anything that we might try shall be in vain if the first is the truth. So they continued repositioning their warriors for an opportune strike, moving their children and womanfolk in the remaining boats to the as-of-yet unassailed moorings of Lonelywood, similar to the strategies of the refugee forces of the other two lakes. On the wall of Bryn Shander, Cassius and Glensather watched the division of Kessel's forces with deepening understanding. Masterfully done, halfling, Cassius whispered into the night wind. Smiling, Glensather put a steadying hand on his fellow spokesman's shoulder. I shall go and inform our field commanders, he said. If the time for us to attack comes, we shall be ready. Cassius clasped Glen Sather's hand and nodded his approval. As the spokesman from Easthaven sped away, Cassius leaned upon the ridge of the wall, glaring determinedly at the now darkened walls of Krishal Tirith. Through gritted teeth, he declared openly, The time shall come. From the high vantage point of Kelvin's Karn, Driz Duarden had also witnessed the abrupt shift of the monster's army. He had just completed the final preparations for his courageous assault on Krishal Tirith when the distant flickers of a large mass of torches suddenly flowed away to the west. He and Gwenhyber sat quietly and studied the situation for a short while, trying to find some clue as to what had prompted such action. Nothing became apparent, but the night was growing long and he had to make haste. 
He wasn't sure if the activity would prove helpful by thinning out the camp's ranks or disruptive by heightening the remaining monster's state of readiness. Yet he knew that the people of Bryn Chander could not afford any delays. He started down the mountain trail, the great panther trailing along silently behind him. He made the open ground in good time and started his hasty trot down the length of Bremen's run. If he'd paused to study his surroundings or put one of his sensitive ears to the ground, he might have heard the distant rumble from the open tundra to the north of yet another approaching army. But the drow's focus was on the south. His vision narrowed upon the waiting darkness of Krishal Tirith as he made haste. He was traveling light, carrying only items he believed essential to the task. He had his five weapons, the two scimitars sheathed in their leather scabbards on his hips, a dagger tucked in his belt at the middle of his back, and the two knives hidden in his boots. His holy symbol and pouch of wealth were around his neck, and a small sack of flour, left over from the raid on the giant's lair, still hung on his belt. A sentimental choice, a comforting reminder of the daring adventures that he had shared with Wolfgar. All of his other supplies, backpack, rope, waterskins, and other basic items of everyday survival on the harsh tundra, he'd left in a small cubby. He heard the shouts of goblin merrymaking when he crossed by the eastern outskirts of Tourmaline. Strike now, sailors of Mare Dulden, the drow said quietly. But when he thought about it, he was glad that the boats remained out on the lake. Even if they could slip in and strike quickly at the monsters in the city, they could not afford the losses they would suffer. Tourmaline could wait. There was a more important battle yet to be fought. Drizzt and Gwenhyver approached the outer perimeter of Kessel's main encampment. The drow was comforted by signs that the commotion within the camp had quieted. A solitary orc guard leaned wearily on its spear, half-heartedly watching the empty blackness of the northern horizon. Even if it had been wary, it would not have noticed the stealthy approach of the two shapes, blacker than the darkness of night. Call in! came a command from somewhere in the darkness. Clear! replied the guard. Drizzt listened as the check was called in from various distant spots. He signaled for Gwenhyver to hold back, then crept up within throwing range of the guard. The tired orc never even heard the whistle of the approaching dagger. And then Drizzt was beside it, silently breaking its fall into the darkness. The drow pulled his dagger from the orc's throat and laid his victim softly on the ground. He and Gwenhyver, unnoticed shadows of death, moved on. They had broken through the only line of guards that had been set on the northern perimeter and now easily picked their way among the sleeping camp. Driz could easily have killed dozens of orcs and goblins, even a verbig, though the cessation of its thundering snores might have drawn attention. But he couldn't afford to slow his pace. Each passing minute continued to drain Gwenhyver, and now the first hints of a second enemy, the revealing dawn, were becoming apparent in the eastern sky. The drow's hopes had risen considerably with the progress he had made, but he was dismayed when he came upon Krishal Tirith. A group of battle-ready ogre guards ringed the tower, blocking his way. He crouched beside the cat, undecided on what they should do. To escape the breadth of the huge camp before dawn exposed them. They would have to flee back the way they came. Driz doubted that Gwenhyver, in its pitiful state, could even attempt that route. Yet to go on meant a hopeless fight with a group of ogres. There seemed no answer to the dilemma. Then something happened back in the northeast section of the encampment, opening a path for the stealthy companions. 
sudden shouts of alarm sprang up, drawing the ogres a few long strides away from their posts. Driz thought at first that the murdered orc guard had been discovered, but the cries were too far to the east. Soon the clang of steel on steel rang out in the pre-dawn air. A battle had been joined. Rival tribes, Driz supposed, though he could not spot the combatants from this distance. His curiosity wasn't overwhelming, however. The undisciplined ogres had moved even further away from their appointed positions, and Gwenhyver had spotted the tower door. The two didn't hesitate for a second. The ogres never even noticed the two shadows enter the tower behind them. A strange sensation, a buzzing vibration, came over Drizzt as he passed through Krishal Tirith's entryway, as though he'd moved into the bowels of a living entity. He continued on, though, through the darkened hallway that led to the tower's first level, marveling at the strange crystalline material that comprised the walls and floors of the structure. He found himself in a squared hall, the bottom chamber of the four-roomed structure. This was the hall where Kessel often met his field generals, the wizard's primary audience hall for all but his top-ranking commanders. Driz peered around the dark forms in the room and the deeper shadows that they created. Though he sighted no movement, he sensed that he was not alone. He knew that Gwenhyver had the same uneasy feelings, for the fur on the scruff of the black-coated neck was ruffled, and the cat let out a low growl. Kessel considered this room a buffer zone between himself and the rabble of the outside world. It was the one chamber in the tower that he rarely visited. This was the place where Akar Kessel housed his trolls. <laughs>